Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me on today's episode are Amory and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week we're talking about Airbnb's current legal woes, Bill Ackman taking on Big Soda, and we picked the best investing resolutions to start the new year with. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Amory, Rory, welcome to the first stock club of the year. It's 2023. Uh, Here we are. Yeah. I like the at way least, we... At least it's not 2022. We kicked, yeah. we kicked still off... hope. We kicked year. off the year with Rory at, saying he couldn't hear me while his headphones were on the ground beside him. <laughs> so it's start as you mean to go on here. Any, uh, any resolutions? Um, I'm going to start, I'm going to do my, I didn't do the documentary one that I used to do last year. So I'm going to do that one again. Oh, yeah. yeah. I feel that like you're quite, to... you're quite good at resolutions. Like you have like a kind of ad, an, an achievable one, I suppose. My, yeah, my, my trick is to pick one and just try, like, that's like once a week thing and try and yeah. do that every week. Everyone's yeah. like, read a book a week, 10,000 steps a day, wake up at 6 a.m., cold showers. It's like, no. yeah, just, I feel like just stick to your lanes. You need to, <laughs> you just get, if you miss one, then you're going to get uh, thrown. Yeah. Amory, any resolutions? Mine is kind of also movie related. It's just when I, I moved last year and when I did, I moved like very close to a movie theater and I never take advantage of it. And there are a lot of movies out at the minute that are only exclusive to theaters. And I was like, maybe I should get better at going to the movies to see stuff just, you know, so the whole industry doesn't collapse in on itself. <laughs> well, it's good timing for Oscar season, isn't it? You should get one of those um, subscription things where you can see it as much as you want, like not movie pass, obviously, the, the ones that actually the cinemas do. Yeah. yeah, one of the the, mo- the movie theater by me has it. I think it's like twenty five euro, and it's yeah, you get to it's unlimited. Then I mean, that's, that's a bad. steal. It's like yeah, fourteen euro. You go to one film then, so yeah, yeah, just go to two and you make your money back. A friend yeah. of mine has it, and he goes and sleeps in the cinema sometimes. Just <laughs> 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 cinemas have gotten so comfortable. There's a place in Galway now, and it's like a full recliner, like wide couch. It's actually a struggle to stay awake for them. But he also he ends up going to all these films that like no one else would ever go to see. Um, and one of the best stories was, do you know what 4DX is? 4DX, no. It's like when the seats, it's like these special cinemas where the seats oh, They move. like shake oh, yeah, with they, the movie. They and, shake and there's like <laughs> wind and there's like water sprays at you and something like that. Um, so he ended up going to see, because he has this pass, he goes to see like literally everything. And he has he has a like a job that has unsociable errors. So he goes at like all times of the day. But one of the things about those 4DX films is there has to be for like safety reasons one of the staff members sits under the screen looking into the audience <laughs> so there's one day he went to see jumanji in 4dx and he was the only person in the theater and there was a staff member sitting there watching him <laughs> rattle around on the seat in for fairness, the entire I, film. i think if you went to see jumanji 4dx at like two o'clock on a tuesday you get put on a list somewhere or something <laughs> yeah <like. laughs> Right, we better get into it. So um, we're kicking off 
this week with Airbnb, which is having a bit of a rough start to the year. It's facing a bunch of legal battles on a few fronts. The most prominent one is in New York. There was a new short-term rental registration law, and this could lead to delisting of as much as 25% of Airbnbs in the city, which is about 10,000, I think. Uh, Philadelphia has brought in new regulations as well. Um, and then closer to home, Ireland has actually drafted new restrictions on short-term leases as well in what it's called rent pressure zones. Um, Rory, you've been looking into this one. What specific restrictions are these new laws putting on Airbnb and, and its hosts? Yeah, I mean, you kind of summarized them quite well there. There's a number of different measures being implemented in different cities. And I suppose the kind of general vibe of them is trying to prevent kind of platforms like Airbnb turning what's supposed to be residential properties into essentially hotels, which is what a lot what a lot of people are using them as, a lot of hosts are using them as. Um, in New York City, for example, a new short-term rental registration law has been put forward by officials, so that's set to go into effect this month. It would require Airbnb hosts to register with the city database. Um, that would include you know, proof that the host actually lived at that address um, and that the property was complying with all the various health and safety requirements of a rented property and all the zoning requirements. Um, it's expected that could remove around 10,000 of New York City's 40,000 short-term rental properties. In Philadelphia, what's happening is, I mean, this this was kind of a law that was passed way back in 2021, um, but due to kind of various factors, including COVID and, and trying to make sure that people were were up to speed with it, it's only being implemented this week. Um, you know, kind of similar measures done a slightly different way. They're, they're going to, hosts are going to have to apply for kind of limited lodging licenses if they live in the property that they're renting out. And if they don't live in the property, they have to, they have to get full hotel licenses and sort out the, you know, apply for the, for the zoning rights to operate a hotel. Um, they also need to register anyone who has an interest in the rental of that property. That includes booking agents, um, which was, had become kind of a major problem in Philadelphia where these kind of party houses were springing up where people were renting out uh, residential homes just to have these huge parties. And when people complained, they couldn't even figure out who was the person you needed to talk to in the end. Um, again, with Philadelphia, they're going to make sure everything's up to spec in terms of safety. Everything has to have, you know, fire alarms, uh, CO2 alarms. Um, and in Ireland, the government has just announced new plans to restrict short-term rentals in areas that are facing rental pressures, which is a lot of the cities right now. Um, it's about again, to say the, the whole country kind of falls in the pretty, red, doesn't it? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, again, they're kind of going down this route. They're they're making it harder for hosts to, you know, to be I mean, just a little bit more paperwork requiring hosts to register. They have to obtain special planning permission. Um, so, you know, it would take a while to go through every restriction throughout the kind of three cities slash countries we're talking about. But in general, all these regulators are essentially trying to make sure that when properties are listed on Airbnb and other sites that, you know, these are genuine homeowners, you know, they're not, you know, companies or, you know, um, investment vehicles that are using these properties, which are really supposed to be for long-term renters who are living in that area to make sure that those, uh, those aren't being used for short-term rentals for, for tourism purposes and to make sure that all those properties are safe being used in a way that's compliant um, with the various kind of zoning regulations that are out there. Yeah, I, I think regulation has always been this overhanging risk for Airbnb and grumblings from governments are go back as far as we can remember. I think Barcelona basically declared war on Airbnb a long time ago and there's still very yeah. much Airbnbs there. Should we be taking these new laws as serious threats to the business? 
yeah, I mean, it's been an, it's been an issue for Airbnb for some time, and you know, I think if if you were to go back and kind of look at the company's kind of founding, um, and there's a really good episode of uh, how I built this with one of the founders. It's not Franceschi. It's the um, oh god, his name's escaping now, but um, you know, re- when when they were talking about founding it, it really was started as a way for people living in an area to host travelers to that city especially you know around times when there was big events and there was kind of lack of hotel rooms and there was something kind of very kind of hippy dippy about it a little bit you know commune-esque where you'd be sleeping on someone's couch they'd show you around the area they'd bring you to the show you the local hot spots and um, you know it then grew you know exponentially in popularity and and you know the, at one point you know the, the guys when they're founding it realized someone had rented out an entire island and they kind of had this kind of aha moment of what airbnb could become and um, and you know it kind of has drifted away i suppose from that kind of original vision so you start seeing like i said investors and companies are forming now just to buy up rental properties and basically turn them into you know hotel rooms um i travel to london quite regularly there's a whole business there built around you know this airbnb economy companies that will manage your airbnbs for you companies specialize in cleaning airbnb accommodations so it's a departure from kind of the original founding of the business and that has caused quite a lot of issues particularly in these like large urban areas um you know that are tourism hotspots and so many places in europe now you know you mentioned barcelona but you know at pretty much any of the major um tourism cities paris amsterdam berlin and um, madrid have all brought in restrictions varying in terms of you know the maximum amount of days a property can be rented out in a year you know whether the property has to be occupied by the owner or you know, barcelona for example they've just imposed ridiculously high taxes on, on on those properties to try and discourage people from using them as such um it's clear local authorities are trying to you know push the case the residential property shouldn't be rented out on a short-term basis um you know basically all year round with no one living there on a full-time basis and I've been following the company for quite a while and a heavy user of their products, as I say, and I, I think from interviews I've read or listened to, management are trying to work with local authorities to kind of figure out how to create a balance. You know, however, at the end of the day, it does show you how exposed the company is to local authorities and kind of the whims um, of the government and when it comes to these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that was very much uh, part of the Irish time piece we were looking at around mm-hmm. this, uh, just kind of how shocked Airbnb's representative was of how how fast it moved and kind of maybe how they weren't really, they weren't really kind of asked about anything. It just kind of happened around mm. them. Uh, but I, I suppose these regulations are happening for a reason. And I, I'm kind of asking, are they a good thing? Like we all know the disaster that is the rental market in Ireland at the minute, especially Dublin. Mm. And it's not just Airbnb's fault, of course, but surely these restrictions should provide some relief to that. Yeah, I think, you know, what authorities are trying to do in most cases anyway is to try to find a kind of good balance that works for, you know, both kind of hosts and the wider community. Obviously, in Ireland, tourism is a very important sector and obviously the government wants to support that. But you can't allow tourism to take precedence over the people who live in the city full time. I mean, I mean, sorry, you can, I suppose, suppose and in Dublin, where we're recording this from, a lot of people would say that's exactly what the government yeah. is doing. Rest um, in peace, and, the Bernard Shaw. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and they're getting an awful lot of kickback because of that. Um, letting properties that are supposed to be used for residential purposes, t- 
be used exclusively for short-term rentals is going to have a serious impact on housing. Like the the New York example, the median monthly cost to rent an apartment in Manhattan is now over four thousand um, dollars. And like as you said, there's various factors at play here. You can't just put all the blame on short-term rentals, but it. At the end of the day, it's a supply problem and short-term rentals do reduce supply. Um, the new measurements in New York are supposed to reduce the short-term rentals by a quarter. You know, So they have 40,000 units in the city. Um, and according to a website called Inside Airbnb, which kind of tracks uh, short-term rentals, over half those 40,000 units are whole homes or apartments. So it's, this isn't people renting at a single room. Uh, it's people renting an entire unit. Um, so that could be 20,000 units that the city is is, is not having there for um, people who'd like to live there on a full-term basis. If you look at Dublin, which is going through you know severe housing crisis right now, last July, there were 342 properties for rent, uh, according to the country's biggest property site. At the same time, there were 376 whole home properties listed on Airbnb. So there's more full apartments, full houses available for rent than there was, or for, available for short-term renting just on Airbnb than there was for people to rent. And it's shocking, like said, really. Yeah, isn't it? It's, and I, like I said, it's about finding a balance. Airbnb would say, you know, they're a vital component in our tourism market, and I don't think there's anything to deny that. In fact, they released data from an economic research cl- uh, firm that claimed that Airbnb guests spend over $774 million in Ireland and support thousands of jobs. However, you, know, you look around the city at, at the moment, and, you know, there's pubs and restaurants that can't open because they can't find staff. There's young people who are dropping out of college because they can't afford to live here. There's vital workers like junior doctors and nurses who are being forced to emigrate because there's just nowhere for them to live. There's nowhere for them to 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 be able to like live in this city and go to the jobs that we desperately need them for. Um, so, you know, is it a good thing? Uh, I think we have to do whatever we can to protect people who live in our capital. It, it shouldn't be an impossible dream for young people. And if we don't help facilitate that, you know, we're going to get to a point where there won't be much reason for tourists to come here in the first place for, you know, knocking down all our great pubs and, and, uh, charging, having, charging people at the tooth as well. Yeah. Charging people at the tooth. Then there's, you know, we're not going to have a tourism industry. So no. I don't know whether it's a good thing or not, but I do think we need to figure out some solution to it. Yeah. I think you kind of nailed it there where it's obviously not Airbnb's fault that there's such a lack of supply, but they are maybe compounding the problem slightly too, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a supply problem, and that's and that, and short term um, rentals aren't helping the matter. There's yeah. there's lots of other things that need to be done, but uh, this is this is definitely kind of these kind of measures are definitely uh, something that's going to help in the short to medium term. Whereas, you know, other proposals like just building loads of loads of new uh, loads of new homes and apartments is going to take a lot longer. Yeah. So then, long term, looking at Airbnb, do you see this as a, a substantial threat to its business model right now? Yeah, it should absolutely be a concern. Um, you know, the proper you know, properties being let out are at the end of the day is Airbnb's product. And you, if you have government and local authorities trying to restrict that supply, you know, there's going to impact your bottom line. I also think, you know, obviously we haven't haven't analyzed every region that we're talking about here, but I would be concerned based on things I've read that a lot of restrictions that have already been put in place, the ones we were talking about in places like Madrid and Berlin and, and Amsterdam, yeah, they, they've been put in place, but they haven't been very tightly enforced. So, you know, you could make a case where, you know, a case where all these restrictions have been in place for years, Airbnb is still, you know, doing well. 
you could make the case that maybe that's misleading um, to think those restrictions haven't had as big an impact as they possibly could do. Um, should housing prices continue to soar, if, the, if you know local governments start putting more pressure on ensuring that those restrictions are are um, are kept to, I think you know the overarching measure, the overarching mission of these measures across all regions is to encourage landlords to make their properties available for long term renters, um, who are actually going to live to live in the area and not tourists. And you know Airbnb, it's a dynamic company. They've proven that they've been able to pivot particularly during coronavirus they were able to you know that that really should have been uh, a killer for that business and they managed to pivot and they've been trying to create green shoots with other things like experiences and medium-term rentals that accommodate for kind of the work from home kind of nomads culture that we're going through at the moment but for the time being short-term rentals in major cities is their bread and butter and if that's under threat then it, it is something that investors should keep an eye on Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Okay, good man. Thanks for that. Um, moving on then, we kind of have a, this is a funny story, but I actually think there's a bit of meat behind it too. So uh, famed investor Bill Ackman, uh, is, is, what's the name of his hedge fund? Pershing, Pershing Square? Yeah, Pershing Square. Yep. Yeah. Um, he is taking on Big Soda. <laughs> which I just, I like that headline, Bill Ma- Bill Ackman versus Big Soda. Um, there was a Twitter thread from a user called Cali Means. He's the founder, uh, the, the founder of True Medicine Care. Um, and it's basically kind of going through all that Coca-Cola and Pepsi are doing to fight sugar tax. Um, so I'm going to read out the quote from Bill Ackman talking about this Twitter thread. Coca-Cola and Pepsi- PepsiCo have caused more harm to global health than likely any other company. Just look at the correlation between diabetes, obesity, and soft drink consumption. It is remarkable that the plaintiff's bar has not yet won a massive judgment against them. In the thread, uh, means details all the ways Coke has gone through to fight sugar taxes and actually get soda included in food stamp funding as well. So there is kind of a bit of a sinister aspect to this too. Amory, can you kind of talk us through the points raised in this thread and whether Bill Ackman is just making a big deal to get a board seat or if he's actually talking sense? 
Yeah, it was actually quite an interesting thread. So Means claims that in his early career, he consulted for Coke um, with the implicit goal of striking down sugar taxes and ensuring soda could be covered by food stamps. Um, There's kind of several ways that they went about this. It really properly kind of kicked off between 2011 and 2013. That's when there was a number of highly publicized pushes by these weren't necessarily states. They were oftentimes cities or counties were trying to get through measures that, you know, if you want a giant 60 ounce soda, you need to pay a 15 cent or a 20 cent tax with the implicit goal being hopefully this will discourage people from drinking this all the time. Um, there's like a number of examples of this that are quite striking. So basically it means shows that Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, uh, Dr. Pepper, Snapple Group, the American Beverage Association, and Kraft Foods funneled hundreds of millions of dollars into anti-hunger groups to argue that soda is one of the easiest ways for people to get calories. Um, this was with the implicit goal of saying we you cannot remove soda from food stamps because people use it as a way to get their daily calorie count up. Um, Jesus, that's a bit grim. Yeah, that's pretty grim. Um, this was combined with an effort to fund studies that aimed to prove that obesity was not caused by soda and does not contribute to the rise of type 2 diabetes. I'm sure that that's we could probably argue against that. But probably most interesting, though, was Coca-Cola has been routinely contributing for a number of decades uh, to the NAACP and the Hispanic Federation to encourage them to argue that sugar taxes were discriminatory and an assault on personal freedom. That tends to be something that we hear all the time when it comes to you know, risky things that the government is trying to regulate. We hear that about cigarettes. We hear that about marijuana usage, about alcohol, about even, you know, guns. The end of the day. So it's it's kind of an old tried and true argument, I think, for people. You know, it's that, that thing of, oh, if I want to drink soda every single day until it kills me, I should have that right to do. Um, and all, kind of all of these steps, the most, like, kind of more horrible part is that all of these steps really ended up working during the period. Big Soda has almost a perfect record when it comes to striking down laws that could curb their business. So yeah, it makes you, it's, you know, it's a bit upset to see it kind of all laid down in front of you. That being said, I suppose it is worth mentioning that the guy who made the original Twitter thread uh, means he's the founder of a startup that is focused on health, like through diet and exercise. So he would want these corporations to come off as like horrible goons, hell bent on poisoning the masses for profit because his whole thing is being like, oh, you know, the most important part of our health is prevention, the number one way to prevent any of these chronic diseases that, you know, absolutely maximize healthcare spending in the United States is to encourage people to kind of every day be striving to live better. So like one point that he brings up in the thread that I kind of don't don't agree with is the fact that he thinks that the USDA's policy, that there is no bad foods, there are just bad diets. He's like, no, that is incorrect. Like soda is a horrible chronic food that people should not be consuming at all. I think I would kind of disagree with that. Like, I don't think it's unreasonable that people maybe have a soda if they're treating it like a dessert, you know, every once in a while type of a thing. I don't think people need to completely cut it out of their diets. But I think it's more the conversation around soda maybe needs to be restructured that people, I think it's particularly an American conversation that oftentimes people drink soda here with every single meal. Like it's just seen as a beverage, like it's the equivalent of water or milk or or juice. And, you know, I think that we maybe need to have a restructuring in that way. Um, Overall, the, the the interesting quote that Bill Ackman ended up leaving us with after the, the entirety of this thread, and he went into a bit more detail about it, was he said, in reality, neither Coke or Pepsi is as profitable as their public filing suggests because the real costs, if they were properly burdened with their negative uh, externalities, are much, much higher than reported. The problem is that society, rather than Coke and Pepsi, bear the costs. So Ackman is going so far to say that, like, listen, like, all of this money that these companies have poured into basically lying to the public and ensuring that they continue to drink a huge amount of soda um, means that they're essentially poisoning people and that, you know, then the society has to bear that cost when they inevitably, you know, end up with heart disease or type 2 diabetes, which costs a tremendous amount and puts strain on the healthcare system. Yeah. I 
government, we just mentioned how important government regulation is there with Airbnb and it goes beyond, it goes through many industries, social media, advertising, sports gambling, breakfast cereal. Is there is there something particularly sinister about how Big Soda, I love using the word, the term Big Soda yeah, now, big is soda. <laughs> <laughs> how Big Soda went about uh, avoiding regulation? Yeah, I definitely think there is. Um, like when researching this story, I went and read a pretty interesting article in the Huffington Post that detailed the efforts specifically Coca-Cola went through to avoid the sugar tax in New York City in 2013. Their kind of specific way they went about it was the Hispanic Federation and the NAACP tried to argue, or rather their lawyer tried to argue, which just so happened to also be Coca-Cola's lawyer. Oh, how, how, how crazy is that? Um, they basically said that a ban of this sort would disproportionately impact small businesses owned by African-Americans and Latinos. The interesting part about that, though, is the exact same strategy and argument and legal defense was used by Big Tobacco in the 1970s and 80s in an attempt to curb smoking bans. So it's never a good day when you have decided to implement the same strategy as Big Tobacco. You know, I don't think that is a favorable comparison. Um, it's And it's like it was just kind of the absolute worst because when they were going about these defenses in 2011, 2012, they were getting all this media attention. You know, it became like a legitimized argument in the eyes of the public. Of course, like the NAACP um, and the Hispanic Federation never disclosed the amount of money that they were receiving from Coca-Cola. It's, it's you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars that they receive on an annualized basis from these organizations. You know, if you go on the Hispanic Federation website, they list Coca-Cola as a corporate sponsor. So, you know, it's it's uh, it does leave a bad taste in your mouth when this like massive corporation is using its power and influence and money to manipulate legislative decisions, particularly like through using essentially the United States's largest civil rights organization as their puppet to try and get this done. And yes, we can probably argue that, you know, the NAACP should have said no to a donation from such a significant corporate sponsor that was seeking, you know, to influence them in this way. But um, you know, I would assume that every nonprofit in the United States probably needs cash right now. And I think it would be quite difficult to say no to such a large sum of money. So um, these those were the two that kind of struck me the most as being the worst. But like Coca-Cola has given money to a lot of people, like a lot of people they should not be hanging out with. You know, the Academy of Nutrition and uh, Dietitians, the American Heart Association, Save the Children, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Diabetes Association, the American Cancer Society, and the American Academy of Family Physicians. And so, you know, if they're willing to throw their weight around in this way with like the NAACP, like what are they doing with all of these other organizations that are oftentimes funding research into – a number of health conditions, I'm sure some of which could be caused if not made worse by a large amount of soda consumption. So, um, yeah, particularly kind of dark and, and, and dreary account. Yeah. Do you think these revelations will impact your perception of these stocks and your willingness to add them to a shortlist or portfolio? Like Coca-Cola's long been a favorite of dividend investors. Warren Buffett is Famously a large shareholder. I think he gets a couple of 500 million quid every quarter with his dividends. Um, Do you think perhaps they should be shifted in terms of perception to vice stocks like alcohol or cigarettes Mm -hmm. maybe? I mean, I think like personally prior to this, I didn't have the best opinion of Coca-Cola just kind of overall. It's like famously the world's worst plastic polluter. It has been for like a decade. So they were never like on the top of my list in terms of like stocks I wanted to own. They got called out when all the fake Twitter accounts were going. Yeah. It was uh, someone got got a fake verified Coke account and they were like, ladies and gentlemen, for the last 25 years, we've been the worst plastic polluter and we are happy to report that once again, we will be the worst plastic polluter in the world. 
Yeah. Um, so, like, they were never on the top of my list. I also do think that we have always known there's a bit of a, a sinister element to maybe not big sugar, but, like, big, big – rather than big soda, like, maybe big sugar. That's something that me and Rory have talked about, like, within the context of Coke and Pepsi, but also, like, even further, like, Monster Energy. Like, Monster has long been, a, a, like, a favorite stock of Wall Street's done very well over the last decade. But at the end of the day, you do kind of have to sit down and be like, but what is Monster contributing to society? Because yeah. all I associate Monster with is like the worst people I went to high school with. <laughs> so it's, it's, it is, you are kind of like, mm, do I want to own this? Um, I will say though, just in terms of like Coke's overall appeal as a stock, I think a lot of the time, the reason people like it is because it seems to have this untouchable brand. You know, people who love Coke really love Coke and they don't like an alternative. Like we talked about Warren Buffett in the intro. He drinks five cans of Coke a day. Yeah, that how is, is how, and McDonald's, McDonald's breakfast or something as well. Like, how is he yeah. still going and working at like ninety five? I don't know. And he like <laughs> proclaimed the drink as the official beverage of the Berkshire shareholder meeting. That's been like that since nineteen eighty six. Like, he loves Coke, so obviously, like, he sees the benefit in owning it. And I would say that, like, when it comes to drink, if you want a soda that tastes like a cola, you have Pepsi, you have Coke. There's kind of an in, like that's indisputable. There's no one else. However, I do think like moving forward, just in terms of like the appeal of the product itself, like uh, soda um, consumption is on a decline. It's estimated to decline at an annualized rate of 0.8% over the next five years to, okay, this is horrible. 39.6 gallons per person. Who is what? drinking this? Wait, so that's an a, awful lot. A gallon is four liters, is it? It's like those massive containers of milk. That's a gallon. So 30, Jesus. almost 40 of them a year. That's an awful lot of soda. Um, so I do think like Ooh. soda consumption is going to fall. So like the overall industry maybe isn't as appealing as it wants to be. So like that's going to mean the name of the game is like we need to move out of soda. We need to go find something else. I mean, you can argue like Coke does have a, a legacy of going and acquiring other beverage companies. I mean, they, they own an awful lot of bottled water businesses, which I also think is horribly unethical. Why are we bottling and selling water? Just drink your tap water unless you are in the unfortunate position that you can't. Um, so like Coke is probably going to chase this market. They're going to pick up some cool innovative startup that probably makes lemonades and then they're going to ruin it and give it, you know, national um, distribution and, you know, they'll get tired of it in seven years and sell it off. So, you know, Coke is going to try and chase this market, but I, I don't think like the brand is going to be like, Coke is always going to be a known brand, but I actually don't think the product is going to stay maybe as popular as we move into the future. So I don't think the stock has as big an appeal as it maybe once had. Yeah, and we're talking about kind of the ethics of investing. And I, I know it's a very personal decision for everyone. Some people won't invest in oil companies, some people will, some people won't invest in like defense companies and stuff. But do you think it's possible to build a portfolio that aligns with an investor's moral compass? Yeah, it's it's kind of a difficult question because of the way like the economy is so interconnected. I think it's like it's very difficult to get like an entirely moral company. For example, like one of the biggest criticisms of Ackman's thread was that 78 percent of his holdings actually sell Coca-Cola products. So it's that thing of like, how can you be how can you hate Coca-Cola that separate yourself completely from it? Um, And like his biggest holdings are like Lowe's and Chipotle, the restaurant brands, International, Hilton Hotels. Obviously, like they are all selling Coke products. Um, but also, I restaurants, it, restaurants, brands, international, <laughs> Burger King, Popeye's yeah, yeah, Chicken, and Tim Hortons. And Chipotle yeah. isn't great either. Like, I, I'm kind of questioning Ackman's um, motives on this one a small bit. Yeah. It is a kind of like he has picked this as as his vendetta. I think like it's probably the the like horrible corrupt money that he's taking issue with. But yeah, probably if we dug in and spent several days doing some research, there's probably horrible accounts of like McDonald's funding 
very shady health research and be like, we. The only thing I would say there, though, is I think McDonald's has a worse reputation than Coke. Like, Coke has always managed to maintain this, like, gleamy uh, reputation in the eyes of everyone. Whereas McDonald's has gotten the hit for a lot of the kind of unhealthy eating habits and stuff. But wasn't McDonald's like one of Coke's biggest customers? So like they basically became just like a a Coke (laughs) distribution outlet. Yeah, there's a big culture that in the US of like you hear people say, oh, I want a McDonald's Coke. Like they don't want a a Coke, specifically a McDonald's Coke, and they will go there and get a massive one. That's a big thing. Yeah. 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 I remember Um, when I was in America, the worst things I've ever seen were the uh, 7-Eleven monster route 66 is huge like oh jesus yeah massive like it's 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 but like it is kind of it's almost foreign to us in ireland but like soda drinking is like huge in the united states like i think it's obviously an international problem but there is a culture in the u.s of people being like i drink a massive soda every day like it's my thing it's like getting a coffee for some people they're like oh i go and get a massive drink from sonic or whatever so it probably is something that needs to be addressed like on a national level like it probably internationally we all drink too much soda but you know that's kind of interesting but like this question of like can you ethically invest i think it's gonna we're gonna have to grapple with it more and more because esg investing is becoming more popular and it was heavily criticized in the news recently republican um lawmakers in the u.s are basically saying like you are lying to investors because you cannot effectively measure the morality or the you know the benefit of a of an individual company and yet you charge huge fees to people to tell them oh we're esg investing this mutual fund you're in is esg um and so yeah i think it's probably something we're going to have to think about more and more individual investors seem to be demanding more and more transparency and so i think when big stories like this come out it does kind of shake you because it is a reminder of like oh a lot of companies use their power and influence in kind of horrible ways sometimes and 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 i suppose you're just hoping you're you're not holding the bag at the end of the day Okay, thanks for that. Um, moving on then, just as a New Year's resolution, why don't you sign on to Opening Bell? Uh, many of you will already be subscribers, but if you haven't heard of it, Open Bell is our daily email. It looks at the most important news story of the day, kind of like a condensed version of the morning brew. So it arrives in your inbox right before the market opens, and it's the perfect newsletter to get your to get an investor ready for their day. If you're a listener and enjoy my Wall Street and our take on things, you're going to love opening bell. So click on the link in the show notes to sign up. Uh, mailbag then. Uh, we have a bit of a New Year's theme running through this episode. So I want to ask both of you, what's the investing res- resolution you would recommend our listeners take up in 2023? I think I've said this a few times before. It's still probably one of the best piece of advice I've ever been given. And that's to keep an investing journal. So Jason Moser from uh, The Motley Fool told me to see that when I first got started. It's a really good practice to get into. Um, basically, before you make any investing decision, just write it down somewhere. It can be in a physical journal or it can just be like a file in your computer. Um, just write down why you're doing what you're doing or what you're planning on doing. It doesn't have to be excessive. It can be a paragraph or just a few bullet points. Just basically outlining, you know, what the plan is, what the reasons for doing it is. So you might say, right, I'm going to invest, you know, a thousand dollars in Amazon, for example, just write down why you think that's a good investment now. Um, what, what growth areas are you excited about? Where do you see the business in five to 10 years? And once you've done that, you know, maybe wait a few days, you can, you can go out, you can do a little bit more research. Uh, if you have the time, try to find someone out there who's saying the opposite of you, you don't have to change your mind, obviously, but it's always, good to hear the counter argument um and when you and then if you do end up investing you know you have a clear 
plan written down in front of you. You should be confident in your decision. It'll come in really handy in future decision making. Um, you know, if there's a day where, you know, the stock drops, you can write down how you're feeling about it, why you think it dropped. Uh, it'll make you, it'll help you decide, you know, in the future, if you want to invest more down the line and it, like at times of panic, when you're thinking of selling, you can look back on your original kind of notes and, and kind of try and put things in perspective and not kind of have a kind of knee jerk reaction based on, you know, one bad report or something like that. So that's, that's my kind of, um, eternal top advice for people getting started. Good stuff. I like that one. Amory, uh, what's your resolution? Mine is very, very similar in that, like I heard from a lot of people in kind of 2022, obviously it was a very difficult year to to be an investor of any kind, to really be owning anything when the overall S&P is down. I mean, I saw an article in Yahoo Finance yesterday that basically was like, there were basically, there were almost no individual like winners. There were no all-time highs were achieved this year. So I think, you know, it, it's it's hard. It's it's difficult out there. Um, and something that I kind of noticed in getting feedback from people who were getting nervous kind of at the beginning of the year was um, sometimes they were holding stocks and kind of similar to what Rory was just discussing, they would forget why they were holding them or why they had initially purchased them. And so I think, yeah, if you're going to maintain an investing journal, maybe, you know, make a little profile for each of the stocks that you hold and kind of write yourself an actual concrete investment thesis. This is why I'm buying this stock. And maybe, you know, if you can summarize it into, you know, five or six bullet points of I like this, you know, I like that they're growing in this area. I think their brand is worth a lot of money. I like their management team, you know, having some easy ones like that. Um, I think is really good for you in terms of, oh, this stock is down 50% this year. You know, is this still a company I feel comfortable holding in? And then go back and look at those original bullet points and be able to say, oh, you know what? Hey, only one of these has significantly changed. These other five I really liked are still in place. Okay. I feel okay. You know, this is just a temporary downturn. I think stuff like that is just really great, particularly if you're early in your investment career and kind of just giving yourself a bit of confidence and calming yourself down. Because, you know, I always think back to that 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 thing Emmett talked about where he's like, oh, 97 or 98 percent of my investments have dropped since I've bought them. And, you know, if you if you have the because you, you you haven't been an investor yet for 10 years, you haven't yet seen that stock come back to kind of give you the confidence of, oh, no, it'll be all right. So, yeah, I think having a concrete place where your ideas have been written down so you can check in with them is really important. Yeah. Know what you own and why you own it. Not the same. Yeah. Um, perfect. Then elevator pitch. We're going to stay on. um stay on the kind of new year's resolution themes. And for someone who is starting investing this year, I want you to pitch me a starter stock for a new investor. Rory, hit me. Uh, yeah, it's always, it's always tricky recommending starter stocks um, for a few reasons. I think one is that a lot of people get into investing when they've heard about some business or they've mm-hmm. kind of, they've got some idea in their head of an opportunity that's out there. Uh, and, you know, very often it's something that they have they think it's going to go you know 100x or something like that and they get really excited um i mean going back through the years there's been a lot of people who ask me about various um nano marijuana companies <laughs> we're like <laughs> nano nanotech mar- ai machine learning <laughs> doobie rolling uh the marijuana ones like, i've had so many people be like oh there's this you know marijuana company that's like 10 million dollars and it's going to be huge so uh, <laughs> like obviously that's not a great idea but to go all in on it um but i do get that people get excited about you know something that they've heard of and that's kind of what usually jolts an interest in investing rather than what I'm going to say, which is the more um, <laughs> take your time, don't rush into it kind of boring um, intro to it. Uh, and that's, yeah, like you might, if you, you might get excited about something and want to start kind of with something that's got like this kind of outsized potential, 
but it's much better just just in terms of just getting your feet on the ground in terms of how it all works how the tech works how brokerage functionality works uh, how to how markets operate you know to start slowly with maybe a few bedrock stocks ones that aren't going to vanish in the next few years you know to include the likes of like amazon apple google although who knows what this new chat gpt thing was going to happen with google but um you know kind of the the safe the safer bets anyway the ones the companies that have been around that are really important in the world or you know depending on where you are in the world you might start with something really solid like you know the s p 500 either through an index fund or an etf um and the reason i'm saying depending on where you are is there are diff different tax treatments for things like etfs in different countries so just make sure you're aware of that beforehand um in terms of just picking one i've I mean i've i've pitched my MasterCard here loads of times so I'll do a different one I think Nike at the moment is a great long-term hold um it's a business that's seen an awful lot of headwinds over the last year two years you know along with other retail giants um but it's managed to really hold its own you know there've been supply chain woes there's been lockdowns in China to contend with there's been this widespread discounting across really the whole sector and even Nike has had to kind of go in and address its own inventory issues um, but I do think these headwinds are, you know, mostly short to medium term. Uh, it's a company that is, you know, it's built on innovation. They have a really ambitious strategy now in place to to double their innovation, double their speed and double their direct to consumer um, segment. And it's a brand that's built to last. You know, this if you go through, um, well, I can't remember the name of the, the research company that does the teen survey. I think it's. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the names escape me now, but they do a teen survey every six months and Nike is still one of the most beloved brands amongst young people, despite that it's 60 year old business. Um, and that's just a testament to to how great they are at marketing and how great they are at branding and how great they are at creating products that people love. So uh, it's a it's a really good long term hold, in my opinion, and it's it's trading a good bit below its kind of five year average valuation multiples right now. So uh, you want to start the stock year off with a good stock Nike's really really good bet yeah built to last is a good uh, is a good line especially for a kind of bedrock foundational stock Amory, what do you got for us well i kind of bounced around my typical candidates um obviously it was wanted to pitch costco, costco yeah yeah, yeah Yahoo <laughs> finances stock of the year 2022 super easy um but i've talked about them a lot so like that's kind of you know it's a bit of a cop-out um i think we did a similar question last year and i think i pitched viva systems so still i solid think we right should though. do it for i think the year where elevator pitches are just you pitching costco and rory pitching mastercard but they get more and more developed as we go on. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rory is doing his elevator pitch from the Dublin micro, Dublin Mastercard yeah, yeah. offices yeah. and stuff in person. Yeah, my final one will be from the food court of the Costco with the one dollar fifty cents. Yeah, exactly. Look I'll at it in with the servers checking out how the rails work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Rory's, I'm unplug- really- Rory's unplugging things. He's like, "What yeah, is this? Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Let's, um, see how, let's see how important Microsoft really is. <laughs> Just unplugs everything." Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to, I, American Tower. I thought, let's go with American Tower. Very boring business. So the, mm. this is very similar to what Rory was saying. You know, it's not the flashy one people would have heard of. It's not the one that you're like, yay, let's start investing. I'm going to own this company. Um, but just like a very kind of brilliant business that is like so smart, isn't going to get unseated by anyone. Essentially, like they build cell phone towers primarily in the US, but I think they're in like six or seven countries there. Um pretty significant but like we're in this great period at the minute with 5g technology coming in 
5G technology requires way, way more um, connect. Like you, you need way more towers to achieve 5G than you need with like 3G or 4G. Um, so it means that basically every major network right now is looking for more space to, you know, rent out more tower space. So it's a great little headwind for a uh, tailwind, sorry, great tailwind for American Tower at the minute. But also they have this kind of developing market at the minute um, where they are getting into edge computing, which is essentially it's a type of cloud computing, but rather than the cloud being, you know, on centralized on some server in California owned by you know Microsoft. The idea is we're going to have small little servers dotted all across the country. And in this way, it dramatically speeds up your ability to access the cloud. Um, this is something American Towers been working on the last couple of years. I would see this as being like a major market for them kind of after five, you know, after 5G has been implemented, they kind of already have their next steps. Um, and it just in terms of like competitive advantage, like we're talking about the ability to own land, like own significant land in kind of populated areas. You know, this is not the metaverse. We will not be making more land. You must own the land now. And American Tower kind of has that. So I just think they have a pretty significant first mover advantage there. And um, yeah, it's like a nice way to combine tech with like the practicality, old worldness of of, of a REIT, of, of owning a bit of real estate. So yeah, I like American Tower. It's kind of a, a first time stock. Good stuff. I like both of them. Um, thanks for that, Les, and thanks for the episode. We're going to finish out today. Uh, remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.